Howdy folks, this is Miss Sinclair for Miss Sinclair's History. Today, we are continuing to learn about AP US history. We are in period two, which looks at the colonial era before the revolution. We are on topic 2.6. These topics align with the AP course curriculum. And today we are going to be learning about slavery. This lecture is the exact same stuff that my students would get in class. I am hoping it is a resource for teachers, students, and anyone who just wants a refresher on US history. You can also just get the audio for these lectures on my podcast, which you can find on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, or on YouTube, you can watch the PowerPoint that goes along with it. So hopefully this will be helpful for you. I want you to think about how has the relationship between colonizers and Native Americans changed over time? Think back to the arrival of the Spanish in the early 16th century and think about the relationship with Native peoples, especially as we think about how Spaniards, the French, the English, and the Dutch interacted with them in different ways. Use this sort of refresher question to remind you, am I learning this stuff? Am I absorbing it? Or is it going through my ears and out my pencil without ever stopping at my brain? So like I said, today we are going to be talking about slavery in the British colonies. Our objectives you will be able to explain the causes and effects of slavery in various British colonial regions. And you will also be able to explain how enslaved people responded to slavery. So let's talk about the origins of American slavery. Well, as we think about the role slavery has played in history, one of the things that historians will often note is that Europeans accessed a thriving trade network. Slavery was already commonly used in Africa. There was already a slave trade network, a human trafficking network going across the Sahara Desert. Uh, the difference is going to be that that slavery system, um, sending slaves to the Ottoman Empire and to the East, were going to be primarily for domestic servants or sexual slavery. And the slavery practiced within Africa was much more of a status than a, um, a state of being. And in both cases, the number of people actually trafficked was very low in comparison, right? We're not talking about millions of people every year. We are talking about thousands. So the Portuguese will be the first Europeans to really access this trade network, and then they are going to change the nature of it. Historians will refer to this as chattel slavery meaning that the slaves in this case, these Africans are going to be treated much more like animals, right? This isn't a status, like you might be a lord or a lady or a commoner, right? 
they were viewed as very subhuman. And thus, since they were viewed as property, they could be abused and exploited almost indefinitely. So our first slaves were brought over to the West Indies, aka the Caribbean and Brazil. This was because the Native Americans that the Europeans had enslaved were dying off at too high of a rate. This was because of malnutrition, because of disease and abuse and exploitation. So they began to bring over slaves from Africa to work on the sugar plantations primarily. So we see that in 1619, our first African slaves arrive in the British colonies. And it's not going to be until 1660 that we have our first explicit slave laws. An example of this would be in 1662, Virginia passes a law that states that a slave's status, right, whether or not someone is born a slave, is dependent on the status of the mother. Why would they pass this law? Right. What would be the role of this? Why bother not just saying like if you are black or if you have a, um, you know, a black father, then you're a slave. Well, the reason is because of the sexual exploitation of female slaves. We see that white men. Um, overseers, owners, um, traffickers would frequently rape and sexually assault slave women. And the slave women had no recourse about this. They, they could not report it, right? Um, the view was, well, this is your property. You can do what you want with your property. And the result of much of this exploitation and assault is going to be pregnancies. So what do you do? You've raped a slave woman. She's now pregnant. Do you take this half African child into your home? Tell your wife, hey, I got this uh, lady pregnant and here, I want you to raise her child. Um, do you sweep it under the rug? Do you, you're going to have a lot of problems if all of a sudden you have all these slave women with free children, right? That's going to impact your ability to leave your wealth to your sort of um, legitimate children with your wife. And then it's awkward. Like you have a slave woman raising a free child. Well, there's laws that impact slaves differently. So what do you do? Well, you just say slave status follows the mother. So it doesn't matter if the father of the child is a free man, if the mother is a slave, the child is a slave as well. Right, this is just, you can see the start of just these dehumanizing laws, right? Slavery is rotten from the beginning. It is an evil act and it is going to sort of be a poisoned fruit um, that will really, the poison from slavery is going to um, be really hard to dispel from the American system, from our history. And we can still see the ramifications of it today. So Crash Course has done a 
great series on Black American history. You will see me occasionally referencing these videos. I do encourage you to watch them. They are very helpful in looking at a experience of Americans that often is overlooked in traditional histories. So I want you to think about rebellions. We're not done talking about slavery right now yet, but I want you to think about rebellions, especially over time and recently. What conditions have to exist to incite people to rebel? So often people will put up with terrible conditions, right? You'll look and be like, why didn't they rebel against the government? Why didn't, why did they put up with being treated like that? You, I will have students ask me, well, why didn't the slaves just fight back? Why didn't they, you know, there's more slaves than plantation owners. Why didn't they, you know, fight back? Why didn't, um, this group of people do this? Why didn't Russians fight back against Stalin, right? He it had his massive purges. Well, my argument, and this is an argument that I have made in world history, in human geography, in U.S. history, is that humans are pretty resilient and we are willing to put up with a lot. However, there's a few things that will incite us to rebel. If you can't feed your children, if you can't pay your rent and you have no hope that things will get better, right? People are willing to put up with a lot. If they have a job, you know, they can put food on the table. Sure. The government's corrupt. Sure. Gangs run the streets. Sure. There's violence, but my little family unit is doing okay right? My children are healthy. They are fed. They know that they are loved. I have a job that can put food on the table that gives us a safe place to live, right? We at least have a roof over our head. And someday my kids are going to get out of here. Someday we're going to save up enough money and we are going to immigrate to another country. Someday I'm going to send my kid to college or just to another town, or maybe in 10 years, you know, this dictator will have died, right? I think it's that hope that someday it's going to be better that will really be important. Because we see that without that hope, then people are willing to do reckless things, right? They start to feel like, what do I have to lose? So we see this rebellion in Virginia. It's going to be called Bacon's Rebellion, and it's going to be over land and labor in Virginia. So Virginia has a growing population. And yet they have limited land. As indentured servants become free, as families have large, large amounts of children, suddenly the amount of available land in Virginia to be bought and sold is going down. If you are looking at the PowerPoint, then you can see a slide um, that as you have more people, you have less land, you see a drop in tobacco prices, which means the um, 
amount of money that the farmers are able to bring in is less, right? It's just suddenly you can't pay rent. You can't feed your kids and your hope that your son will be able to have a farm of his own is going away, right? People want to move West. The indentured servants start to have conflicts with the native Americans. So governor Berkeley, governor of Virginia had, um, had a couple of things going on. First Berkeley rewarded his supporters with good land, right? So he's supporting the wealthy with more wealth. He has also, you know, cut a deal with the Native Americans, the Doeg Indians, um, saying like, hey, we're not going to expand into your territory, right? Here's the boundary line between Virginia and Doeg territory. We will not move into it. So that means indentured servants like Nathaniel Bacon are really frustrated, right? The good land has already been given to the rich and the rich led by Berkeley is not allowing them to migrate West to get land of their own. So when you have a flashpoint, Doeg Indians steal a pig. In response, Virginians kill 30 Doeg and Susquehannock villages uh, and kill five chiefs, right? So, right, the Virginians have escalated the conflict. Doeg Indians should not have stolen a pig, right? But the response to that is give the pig back or pay for it, not go over and kill and attack 30 villages, right? So in response to that attack, the Native Americans began, uh, responded with violence of their own, attacking outlying plantations. Governor Berkeley wants to avoid trouble and to really keep the deerskin trade he has going on with the Native Americans going. He knew of the violent conflicts in um, New England, and he wanted to avoid that. So after the Native Americans attacked the plantations, the Virginians want to attack again. Well, Berkeley refuses to attack the Indians. He sort of says, like, look, enough blood has been spilled. Let's just, like, call it a day. So enter Nathaniel Bacon, right? Bacon has an intense hatred for Native Americans. He was very ambitious, extremely rude, and he is going to create an army of over 2000 indentured servants and attack, um, native Americans, right? He wants their land. He, um, will become a symbol of the mass resentment on the part of lower class whites, indentured servants against the Virginian establishment. Berkeley refuses to help him, right? Berkeley's stance on all this is already, look, enough blood has been spilt. We're not going to respond to the attacks on the plantations. Bacon has attacked in response. So Berkeley says, look, this guy's a rebel. He is acting independently without the approval of the government. He's causing more violence. um, Berkeley refuses to condone Bacon's murder of peaceful Native Americans. So Bacon 
organizes this sort of declaration of the people. They are being taxed unjustly. Um, all the good jobs are going to Berkeley's sons and cousins and cronies, right? He has accusations of nepotism. Um, the rich have monopolized trade. They aren't protecting farmers against Native Americans. So Bacon takes his little army and attacks Jamestown, right? He defeats the militia and he burns the town down. Berkeley flees and suddenly Bacon is in charge. Well, Bacon dies suddenly and his allies are all killed once the British warships arrive. Bacon is dead. I am sorry at my heart that lice and flux should take the hangman's part is the rhyme that floated around. The, um, the leadership of the warships um, basically says, look, I'll pardon you if you surrender. And so this is really a turning point in Virginian history, right? Why am I bringing this up? Well, it will mean a shift away from indentured servants to slaves, right? This will mean the wealthy Virginians decide this resentment that was fomenting here is going to come back again. It's too risky to have these indentured servants, right? Poor white men who you ex essentially exploit. Um, but then after seven years, these men become your equals legally. And suddenly that resentment sort of has, I don't know how to say this, more grounds in the eyes of the law. Slaves though, slaves you can exploit indefinitely and they will never be your equal in the eyes of the law, right? So we start to see the solidification of racist laws. And as we shift more towards slavery, it makes slavery the center of the Virginian economy. This also means the destruction of Virginian Native Americans, right? Berkeley had tried to side with natives over other Virginians, and it ended with Jamestown being burned. Future politicians aren't going to make that mistake. So we see that in 1700, slavery made up 10% of Virginia's population. By 1750, slaves make up almost 50% of Virginia's population. This is a huge shift. We see more and more slaves being brought over and used in the South. We talked about how in the Carolinas, the, um, <laughs> the motivation for founding the Carolinas was because so much of the Caribbean islands were being used to grow sugar that they needed somewhere else to grow uh, food. So of course, the sons of these plantation owners will be bringing over slaves to work on these farms. So we see in the South, slavery is being used. However, it would be a mistake to say that the North was free of slavery. We tend to think of the North and the South more in terms of the Civil War when it comes to the issue of slavery, but that would not be an accurate assessment in the colonial period. 
right? The Puritans are not free of this stain of slavery. We see that Rhode Island actively traded slaves, right? The merchants of New England bought and processed goods from plantations, right? They are part of the triangle trade. They make up that side of the triangle that ships goods from the new world to the old. So here's a question I want you to wrestle with. Actually, do I have it here? No, I don't. Okay, here's a question I want you to wrestle with throughout the course of this class. How culpable do we hold people in the past, right? How responsible do we hold people? Because on one hand, we can say, well, they didn't know better. They didn't have a choice, right? Sure, they are buying sugar and rum from um, plantations that use slavery. Sure, they participated in triangle trade, but that's just how the world was. They had they they had no other option um, but to participate in slavery. Okay, if that's our argument, then shouldn't we also give a free pass to plantation owners? Right. What about the children of plantation owners? What about the whites who lived in the South who didn't own slaves, but were still actively part of that economy, right? Who perhaps worked as blacksmiths or carpenters. They didn't own slaves. They didn't have a plantation, but they were part of that economy, right? How active in the slave trade do you have to be for us to look back and say, oh, that was a bad thing? Oh, we, your bad acts outweigh your good acts. It's easy to look at someone who actively traded slaves, right? Who um, sold them at auction and say, aha, you are an evil person and history will condemn you. But what about the people who passively participated in it, right? It's not like children chose to be born into plantation families. On the other hand, children didn't choose to be born as slaves, right? Slaves didn't choose this either. They are going to be assaulted physically, sexually. They are going to be uh, dehumanized at every term. They are going to be deprived of their lives, of liberty. They are going to be terrified as they are brought over. Right. So how do we reconcile this part of history? I don't have an easy answer for you, but I want you to wrestle with the question. All right. Let's think about sort of this crisis period of 1739. Students ask me, like I said, why didn't the slaves fight back? Right. It's not like they are passive. The many of these men were warriors back in Africa. Right. They're not they're not accountants. Right. Why didn't they fight back? Well, we do see, we do see incidents of fighting back, right? One example would be the Stono Rebellion, sometimes referred to as Cato's Conspiracy or Cato's Rebellion. Many slaves from the Congo will take over South Carolina for a summer. Malaria had weakened the white population. Jemmy, a literate slave, ran the revolt. 
And we see that 20 slaves will burn seven plantations, kill 20 whites, and gather 80 more slaves. But ultimately, the militia will confront them. Half the slaves will be killed. And, and so one of the challenges is, okay, you don't have access to weapons. And also, now what? Great. <laughs> you killed a few plantation owners. Now what? You're still there. You're still on another continent. Do you know how to sail a, um, a wooden sailboat, right? A ship that can get you across the Atlantic Ocean? I certainly don't. Your average slave wouldn't either. So sure, you can fight back, but then what? Militia from other towns are going to come around with more weapons and more soldiers and fight back. Some of them will... As some of the Congolese slaves um, will escape to Florida, right? Spanish Florida offered freedom, in fact, to escaped British slaves. Ultimately, though, all this will do is cause slave owners in the American South to focus on building their own slave population instead of importing, right? It doesn't free them. It just convinces them that perhaps importing slaves from Africa, those slaves will be more wild because they've known what it's like to be free. So let's talk a little bit about the experience of slaves themselves. You might already be familiar with this from world history, um, but in case you are not, it is um, important to understand. So you'll often hear historians refer to something that we call the middle passage. The Middle Passage is the part of the Atlantic Circuit involving the transportation of enslaved Africans across the Atlantic to the Americas. So between 1650 and 1800, 7.5 million slaves will be shipped across the Atlantic. In total, between 1500 and 1850, 12 million Africans are shipped across the Atlantic. And the mortality rate on these ships is going to be about 15 to 20%. So what does that mean? That means for every 100 slaves put on one of these ships, 20 of them are going to die. The mortality rate is incredibly high. The fertility rate is incredibly low. The only way to keep the large number of slaves working in the Americas is to import more. The cargo size is varied, but sometimes as many as 800 slaves would be on one ship. And when supplies on the ship ran low, when you started to run out of food or water, they would just throw the weakest slaves overboard. Perhaps you are familiar with the image I'm showing on the PowerPoint right now. It shows a ship as if you're looking at it from the top and you can just see slaves um, put in the ship like matchsticks, right? They are cheek and jowl, shoulder to shoulder. Every space where you could fit a grown person, you are. They are tetris in so tight. And this is how slaves would be packed. Um, cheek and jowl chained to other slaves. So when you had to go to the bathroom, you just went. And if there were people underneath you, like you're stacked, like you would books on a shelf, 
that means your urine, your poop, your more likely your diarrhea is just going to rain down on the people below you. This is an incredibly traumatic journey, right? When we talk about PTSD, we often think about war or maybe um, a shooting. This is also going to induce PTSD, right? Slaves are taken from your home. You are branded by hot irons. You are shackled and you are abused throughout the journey. They would shackle the men together. So chain the men together so they wouldn't commit suicide and they'd be kept under the deck most of the day. So maybe you get a little bit of, um, of sunshine, but for the most part, you are chained to a bunch of other people. You can't escape. Imagine this. Imagine that you are taken from your home. You are chained to a bunch of other people who do not speak the same language as you, right? You are put into a small box where it's incredibly claustrophobic, where you are skin to skin with hundreds of other strangers. You don't know what's happening. You can't see out the window. You don't know where you are. When you come up, maybe you get on top of the uh, deck of the ship. All you can see is blue ocean. And then finally, if you survive the trip across, you are in a strange new land, right? It is not the hot tropical climate of Nigeria or Angola, but instead it is Virginia, right? It is Savannah. It is Charleston. If you wanted to escape, how could you go back? How would you know where you are, right? Today, we have a general sense of geography, but heck, I bet I could ask most of you to point on a map where Washington DC is, and you might get the right half of the country, right? How you could not navigate yourself across the world without maps, without being able to read, without being able to speak the language. Slave ships are dirty, unsanitary. They are going to see frequent attempts at suicide and resistance. It's a horrible and inhumane condition, right? So I have a series of maps on the slides here that show the volume of slaves. The vast majority of slaves will go to Brazil and the Caribbean. A significantly smaller number will go to British North America. In part, this is because of the sugar plantations um, in South America and the Caribbean are going to be much more destructive, right? The mortality rate in the Caribbean on a sugar plantation is going to be like 23, right? Um, like you're not going to live to 30. Um, in North America, they're working on tobacco plantations, um, rice. We don't have cotton plantations yet. Um, and those are just simply less deadly. So on this map, you can see triangle trade. I'll try and describe it well for our podcast listeners from North America. You have raw materials like whale oil, lumber, fur, rice, indigo, tobacco, sugar, molasses, 
these things go to Europe. Europe sends guns, clothing, iron, beer to Africa. Africa sends primarily slaves to the new world. This is triangle trade. So let's talk a little bit about what life is like on a plantation. We're going to talk a little bit about sugar plantations very briefly. Um, and then um, we're going to talk more about slave societies. So plantations will really become the focus of African slave life in um, the new world. Atlantic slaves were primarily men and used for labor. So you would have sort of three gangs. You'd have the great gang, which would be the strongest slaves who did the heaviest work. The second gang, youths, elders, the less fit. And then finally the grass gang, right? These would be children, small children, um, like think six and under, under the um, leadership of the oldest slaves responsible for weeding and simple work. Women often made up the majority of field laborers, right? Nursing mothers would take babies with them into the fields. Slaves too old to work in a field often tended toddlers, right? Looked after young children. Men were imported at a higher rate because they died at such a higher rate. So our sugar plantations will be primarily in Brazil and the Caribbean. And in, oh, In slave societies, you had different terminology and even different internal hierarchies, right? So saltwater slaves would refer to slaves that were born in Africa. Creole slaves would be slaves born in the Americas. And many of these Creole slaves would be considered mulattoes because they would be mixed race due to the sexual exploitation of slave women, right? Because these women were raped they have been given, uh, they give birth to mixed race babies. So there was a hierarchy created by slave owners. Creoles and mulattoes would often be given more opportunity to acquire skills, um, like work in a house, become a carpenter or a blacksmith. Planters would reward skilled slaves with better quality food, clothing, or time off, um, right? So there was an incentive to collaborate with your enslavers, right? With the people who abused you because it would improve your quality of life and the quality of life of your children. Most worked hard out of fear of the lash. If you fell behind because of fatigue or illness, you'd be whipped. They would work from sunrise to sunset and punishment for rebellion or escape would be flogging, confinement in irons or mutilation. So your hands would be cut off, your tongue would be cut off. So slave families would be difficult to form because you could be separated at any time, right? There was a low natural increase rate, which means um, women had few children. This was in part because of overwork and poor nutrition. Um, women's uh, female slaves would be unable simply to get pregnant or even carry that baby to term. The male to female ratio was sometimes three to one. And while slaves would be given Sunday off frequently, 
that was the one day that they had to do work around their own homes, right? Try to grow more food to feed their families, put a, um, build a space for themselves to live, mend clothing, wash it. So there was no time for fun, no time for education and very little time for family. Since the mortality rate was so high and this was from heavy field work, disease, accidents, it meant that you had to incre uh, increase the number of slaves you imported, right? It was cheaper to buy a new slave frequently than to raise one. So you might hear um, primary sources or secondary sources refer to sort of this seasoning. And it was the difficult period of adjustment after a, sli a slave arrived in the new world, right? They had to adjust to the new climate, the new diseases, the new work routine. But by 1720, there were enough female slaves in the Chesapeake area to make families possible. This will lead to a decline in North America importing slaves. It doesn't mean there is a decline in the use of slaves or even our slave population, but sadly it means we have a large enough slave population that it's self-sustaining. So we start to see that the slaves living in North America specifically will begin to develop their own unique African-American culture, right? This, this is syncretism, the mixing of cultures. These slaves might have come from different regions of Africa. They, there might be Muslims, there might be Christians, there might be animists, right, who practice traditional religions. And yet they are united in this common experience. And so they start to mix. A good example of this would be the Gullah um, culture and language. So the um, Gullah is a unique language of slaves on the islands on the coast of South Carolina. It was a blend of Yoruba, Igbo, and Hausa. We start to see the development of um, traditions like jumping over the broom um, or religions mixing, right? Um, you see um, that there would be a mix of religions like Vodun, voodoo, which will develop in the Caribbean, uh, which is really a mix of Christianity and traditional West African religions. And some African nobles and religious leaders would still exercise authority within the African community. Okay, but why didn't they rebel, right? If they're strong from working in the fields all day, there's more slaves than plantation owners, why didn't they fight back? Well, incidents where slaves did fight back uh, were rarely successful, right? You might think of tacky and um, the slave tacky in Jamaica who attacked several plantations, set them on fire, killed the plantation families um, and their leaders would be captured and tortured to death to defer future slave rebellions. The problem is gonna be you rebel, now what? Now what? You're still surrounded by white people, right? The other plantation owners in um, other colonies or even from Britain, they're not gonna let you rule yourselves. It's too much of a threat. You give too much hope. 
And so any victory you have is short-lived. Interestingly enough, in Brazil um, and in Florida, we will see um, slaves running away pretty successfully. In Brazil, they'll escape into the Amazon. In um, like Florida, they'll escape into the Everglades. And they will form what become known as maroon societies. Maroon societies will be run runaway slaves create their own communities in remote areas, their haven for escaped slaves. And you do see that some Europeans will practice manumission. Manumission is the uh, granting of legal freedom to an individual slave, right? So if a slave becomes free, um, it is thanks to manumission. It will be more common in Spanish and French colonies than in the British colonies. Most free Blacks purchase their own freedom, right? If you have a, um, a skill of some sort, a, um, your slave owner might hire you out to other uh, people to practice that skill. So if you're a carpenter, you might be hired out to build something and you can keep some of that money. Because slave status followed the mother, most slaves, most families would seek to buy the freedom of the women in the family first, right? So if there's a husband and wife, they would buy the freedom of the wife first. So that means any children they have might be born free. Okay. I know that's a lot of information and most of it very depressing. There are is a lot of really excellent scholarship out there on American slavery. And there's a lot of really excellent videos on YouTube. There is a video called Life on a Slave Ship from the History Channel that I really recommend. There's also um, a video on inside a historic swamp refuge inside looking at one of these maroon societies. From Ted Ed, they have a video on the Atlantic slave trade. I recommend crash course has a video on the Atlantic slave trade. Um, PBS has a video on why did Europeans enslave Africans? You can find all supplementary videos on my uh, YouTube page. There's just going to be a playlist called a push unit Two videos, but that's the end of our lecture. So you should be able to explain the causes and effects of slavery in various British colonial regions and explain how enslaved people responded to slavery. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions, please let me know. Have a great day.